And take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12, the Gospel of John chapter 12. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one there in the back of the pew in front of you. You should be able to find um, a copy of God's Word. We typically use the English Standard Version. That's the version that's there in your uh, at your disposal. If you don't own your own Bible, that is, you don't have one at home that you can um, that you, you can read, uh, we want that to be a gift for you this morning. Uh, that Bible is yours to keep. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. John chapter 12 and uh, verse 27 through uh, 36 will be where we are this morning. And as many of you know, uh, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings and are now at the point where it is just before Jesus goes to the cross. He has re- revealed himself publicly one last time at the Feast of Tabernacles and is now once again about to go and instruct his disciples on their own. And we're in the midst of Jesus' final words uh, publicly here before he goes to celebrate his last Passover with his men. If I could ask you one more time, if you're able to, to stand with me this morning as we do our New Testament reading from our passage, I'd appreciate that. John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. I'll ask you to follow along as I read aloud. Again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? This is Jesus speaking. Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. You may be seated. That is the word of God in the New Testament reading this morning. Pray it's been a blessing to you both in the Old and New Testament readings. Would you join me in prayer once again? Lord, we come now as those who are in Christ, uh, those who are here that are in you, the saints, and pray that by your Holy Spirit who inspired these words in the original autographs that you would now illuminate our eyes and our hearts to an understanding of these truths. And we believe that you, Holy Spirit, can do that. We pray that we would apply these things today. We also believe that your Holy Spirit can convict mankind concerning sin and righteousness. So I pray for those who do not know you that are in our midst, that today might be the day of salvation for them as they hear the gospel this morning, that you would awaken their hearts, Lord. Uh, Give them hearts of flesh, replacing their hearts of stone, and draw them to yourself and awaken them. Lord, quicken their spirit. 
Uh, Grant them repentance and faith this morning that they might believe in you. And we pray all of this, Lord, praying that you would continue to humble me and get me out of the way and that we might only see the glory of Christ this morning. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Entitled this morning's sermon, Truth and Misinformation, I recently listened to an episode of Albert Moeller's podcast, Thinking in Public, in which he interviewed James Olson, the former CIA chief of counterintelligence. As you might imagine, it was a fascinating interview for many reasons. I would encourage you to go out and listen to it. It's really, really fascinating uh, to, to, to hear about this man and, and his wife, actually, as well, and their missions with the CIA. But one thing that stood out to me uh, was that the entire time that Olson and, uh, and his wife served with the CIA, his family, friends, and even his own children who were living in his home with him did not know that he and his wife both were secret agents in the CIA. They were in some dangerous places and in some dangerous situations, and their family did not even know that. They did not know what they were really up to in all those years that they worked for the CIA. In fact, I could be a CIA agent, and you wouldn't know it. I wouldn't tell you that. If I did, I might have to hurt you, and I don't want to do that. I'm not a CIA agent. At least that's what you think. They, they did not know what they were really up to. To come out from under their cover would have been devastating to their operations, devastating for the safety of the U.S. and even the world and certainly their own lives. One way we might say it is this. They had to keep their identity from the world in order to save the world. They had to keep their identity from the world in order to save the world. Now that may be a bit over-dramatized this morning, but you understand in what sense I mean that. It is actually the opposite of this when it comes to the mission of Jesus. Though there are many ways in which Jesus does not come right out and say who he is, and he even tells his disciples, don't tell men who I am. There are many times by what he says and by what he does make it exactly clear who he is and what he has come to do by the things that he does, by the certain things that he says. If Jesus is, uh, I'm sorry, and yet as we will see, there are those who still do not believe in him. There are still those who do not believe in him. If Jesus is ever covert, it is because the religious leaders have understood what he is stating about himself and he hides himself because they are seeking to kill him and it is not yet his hour. Now, however, as he has stated in our previous text, it is his hour. It is his hour. And he has made even more clear his mission And this is why I say in our main point this morning, we must keep the gospel central as Jesus keeps the gospel central. You have that written for you in the back of your worship folder. If you turn that over and look there, if you're tuning in from home on the live stream that's been emailed to you, we must keep the gospel central, the good news central, as Jesus, who is the embodiment of the good news, keeps the good news central. I want us to see this morning three perspectives about Jesus' inevitable death. Three perspectives about Jesus' inevitable death, which is, of course, the, the means by which the gospel, the good news, is accomplished. 
The first is this, a conversation between son and father. A conversation between son and father. In verses 27 through 29, look at those again with me if you would, please. This is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? And, and, and the way you could render this is, shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The first thing we observe here is Jesus' response to the coming of his hour. And this is what has been signaled to him in the previous uh, verses that we saw last week when the, the Gentiles come and inquire, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And this is a signal to Jesus that his hour has now come. It's almost as if here in these verses that we look at this morning in response to that, we catch Jesus thinking out loud to himself. It, it says there that he says his soul is troubled. Undoubtedly, we see here the human emotion of Jesus. And by that, we recognize that it is not sinful. Human emotion is not sinful. Jesus could not have sinned. This is a true troubling moment for Jesus as he considers what he is going to endure on the cross for the sake of mankind. We're also reminded here that Jesus is indeed the God-man. He is truly God, divine in every sense, eternally begotten of the Father. And yet, also in His incarnation, He has taken a human nature and the one person of Christ, which is now two natures, experiences human emotion. Listen to the way the authors of the London Baptist Confession state this. Listen to the way that they bring these two truths together. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made, did when the fullness of time was complete. Take upon Him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. As we see Jesus here express this emotion, this, this troublement, as it were, in his soul, we are reminded, yes, he is eternally God, but he has taken on human nature. And he, in this moment, as we see him march closer and closer to the cross, he feels the weight, the troubling of what is to come. And we are reminded that Jesus indeed experienced what you and I experienced. The book of Hebrews tells us this, that he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He in his incarnation is feeling the, the true stress, as it were, of what is about to happen. We see this again reflected in the garden, do we, do we not? More fully, we even sang about it this morning, uh, which um, I don't know, Heidi, if you read ahead in the passage and pick the songs or if that's just what ends up happening, but all the songs typically kind of point to where we're going to be in, in God's Word. It's so, uh, so great in, in God's providence. 
Further, Jesus asks, how should he respond to this imminent reality? Should he respond with, Father, save me from this hour? Is this the proper response to this moment. Again, there is the the tug of his humanity here about uh, what, what he is to face. But as we see, it's always followed with the truth of how he ought to respond. His resolve is to do the will of him who sent him. As he states earlier in the gospel, this is the the chord that is struck throughout the gospel of John that Jesus is here in the incarnation, submitted to the will of the Father. Truly the triune will of the Godhead in His incarnation. And He is sent from the Father. He is doing what He sees His Father doing. And He has come on mission, as it were, for this very hour, He says. And so His response must be, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Once again, we're reminded that Jesus is recognizing here that his hour has come. The hour spoken of earlier in the gospel, the hour he kept saying had not yet come. And it's about uh, 60% of the way through uh, the gospel of John before he says, no, now is the hour. With this being said, Jesus turns his attention to the glory of the Father. This is the purpose. Father, glorify your name. There, there is a, um, in, within the triune Godhead, a mutual glorification that has been going on for eternity as the one God in three persons, all sharing the same essence, work for the glory of the triune Godhead. What is glory? It is shared between the Godhead, but Jesus directs it to the Father here because of the work Jesus is sent to do in His incarnation. As that triune glorification is worked out from eternity into space and time, it is now the hour when the Father will be glorified in space and time by the work that the Son was sent to do. I love how the church father Christosom summarizes this apparent conflict in Jesus, but yet how it is resolved. Listen to what he says, Quote, although my trouble urges me to say this, yet I say the opposite. Glorify thy name. That is, lead me henceforth to the cross. End quote. This is the goal. Jesus comes to seek and to save that which was lost. His name means God saves This is the purpose of the incarnation. This is the purpose of his mission. When we then encounter a rare occurrence in the New Testament, the Father audibly responds to the Son. Now we know that Jesus often goes uh, to commune with the Father after a a busy day of of healing and preaching. He oftentimes goes off into seclusion either in the evening or early in the morning. And uh, here we witness, though, this rare occurrence in the New Testament, this out loud interaction. Listen to verse uh, 28 again. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, 
and I will glorify it again. Glory. What is glory? It is the uplifting of the name of God. It is the idea that the resplendence of God would be seen. Are our minds not drawn back to John chapter 1? No one has seen God at any time. The only God who is at His side, the, the one who is in His bosom, some translations say, He reveals Him to us. John in his epistle says, uh, we have seen His glory. What does it mean that the Father has glorified His name and will now glorify it again? Well, my mind is drawn to passages like Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 11 where God says to Israel, uh, as He says He's going to, to, to heat up the, uh, the fire and to, to draw out the dross from them. He says it is... For my sake, for my, my sake, do I do it. Not, not for your sake, Israel, but for my sake do I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. What is the confidence that we have about God's glory? He will not give it to another. Yet, what do the Scriptures remind us? Jesus will be glorified. I don't mean that in the sense of His resurrected body, but in the sense of His glorification, the resplendent glory only that belongs to the Godhead. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is about to endure the greatest suffering any human has ever faced, and in the midst of this, God will be glorified. And if this is true, what do you think that God can do with our suffering? Something to ponder this morning as we think about the greatest suffering that ever occurred in human history and God will be glorified. What can God, how can God be glorified in our suffering? Another question that comes to mind is how has God glorified himself already in this context? In one sense, in the incarnation itself. This is the outworking of the eternal plan of the triune God in space and time. And in one sense, God has received glory from this. In a very similar vein uh, to Isaiah 48, Ezekiel prophesies concerning the new covenant, which is inaugurated at the cross in Ezekiel 36, 22, and 23. Listen to what it says. Thus says the Lord God. Now this is, he's, he's in the context of this speaking about the new covenant, which comes through the incarnation, the perfect life of Jesus, uh, the cross. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. What has just occurred in the context of where Jesus says this? Gentiles have come to uh, Philip and Andrew and have said, um, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so some people think that perhaps echoing in Jesus' mind is Ezekiel chapter 36 here. In what way will the Father be glorified? In what way will the triune God be glorified? As they bring people into one family from every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
Remember, this is the signal to Jesus that it is now the hour. This, again, could have been echoing in the mind of Jesus as he's thinking about the cross, thinking about the Gentiles who've just come again to see him. Once again, as we think about the suffering that Jesus is about to endure, and in this, his resolve and the is uh, the name of the Father being glorified. And God the Father affirms this with a voice from heaven. How much more, dear believer, can we be sure that God is glorified and will receive glory from all that He has ordained in our lives? I don't know how all of you are suffering or perhaps what is out in front of you. I do know some of the things that some of you are struggling with. Dear saint, this morning, rejoice in the fact that God has ordained it for His glory. And we additionally have, in Romans chapter 8, for our good as well. I think it's John Piper who says, not one ounce of suffering is wasted by God. Trust Him this morning. Trust His plan. Lean into Him. Lean into your brothers and sisters who will remind you that He is a good God. We don't know what kind of suffering we might endure. I was just listening to a sermon from a pastor out in Arizona where another one of my friends pastors and he was speaking about God's goodness and the tragedy that happened in their life. They were loading up to leave from a vacation And this man did not know that his youngest son was out in front of his truck and he ran him over and killed him. He did not know what occurred. He thought maybe some sort of an animal or log out in front of his truck and when he got out he realized it was his sweet son. Scooped his son up. And he said, all I could say as I was carrying the lifeless body of my son, thinking that maybe some way we could preserve his life, all I could say is, God is good. God is good. God is good. I don't know what kind of suffering you're facing, but God is good. Even as the Son of God faces the greatest suffering that any human could ever imagine, he says... Father, be glorified in this. Those who have not trusted in Christ, I call you to see the God-man here as the one who is the Christ. He is the Savior of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He did live a perfect life. He did die the death that we deserved. And He victoriously rose again, as we sang about this morning. And... When he had finished paying, he said, it is finished. Christ is your only hope. Trust in him this morning. Well, the crowd does not know what has happened when they hear this voice from heaven, which leads to our second point, a conversation between Jesus and the crowd. There's a conversation between the son and the father, and now there's a conversation between Jesus and the crowd in verses 30. Through 34. Look again at verse 30. Jesus answered, I'm sorry, verse 29. The crowd that stood near and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. 
They're, uh, they're um, thinking about what has just occurred. They're not sure. Some say it's thunder. I mean, odd sort of thunder. Others say, well, an angel spoke to him. Not really quite sure what the people heard here. Did they hear an audible voice and they were too frightened to say, that was a voice. (laughs) Someone just spoke. Or did they not have ears to hear and so they just heard the murmurs of God as it were, as, as, as if it were thunder? Or perhaps they thought that was a little different than thunder, but I can't put my finger on it, therefore it's an angel. We're not really sure. But here's what Jesus says in response to that in verse 30. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Again, we mentioned that Jesus had regular communion with His Father, and certainly we would guess their communication was more unique than any other human has experienced. But Jesus says that at this moment, just as He prayed to the Father before the the tomb of Lazarus, I, I pray these words not because I don't think you hear me, Lord, but because they need to hear me speak to you. In a very similar sense, He's now saying, This voice is for you. Look at verses 31 through 33. Now is the judgment of this world. So now he's explaining. This is why it is for your sake and not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Let's kind of break down what is Jesus saying here now is the judgment of this world. What is this judgment? Well, I agree with D.A. Carson, who says it's kind of a dividing line kind of judgment, a discernment kind of judgment. Carson says, quote, As the light of the world, Jesus forces a division between those whose evil deeds are exposed by His brilliance and those whose deeds prompt them to embrace the light in order to testify that what they have done has been done through God. And and, uh, that, of course, is taken from John chapter 3, verses 19 and 21. In other words, this kind of judgment is, is putting forth this proposition. There are only two ways, the way of the triune God or the way of the deceiver, the adversary. He mentions Satan in the very next verse. This is the judgment. There are two sides. There's God's side or the devil's side, to put it Uh, Quite frankly, like the old spiritual, who is on the Lord's side? This is the day of judgment. Uh, Choose ye now whom you will serve, is maybe a way to say it. And Jesus makes clear what happens to the opposition. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. What does it mean that, and and this is a, a reference to Satan from the rest of Scripture, we, we know theologically. What does it mean that he will be cast out? Well, it does not mean that he won't be active anymore. That's clear from the rest of Scripture. But at least that this is the stamp of finality of any sort of power or reign that he has. In other words, the cross is the beginning of the end for the enemy. And sort of regardless of your end times view, right now what we can say is that Satan is a defeated foe. And this is at the hand of the triune God through the sending of the Son, uh, the perfect life, death, and resurrection of the Son, the sending of the Spirit as the guarantee of redemption to the sons and daughters of God. 
Now, this doesn't, again, mean that Satan is not active or that he's not trying in some way to to draw us away from God, to deceive us still. But the cross and the resurrection, what what is right out in front of Jesus as he says these things, is the beginning of the end. This is why the language of Satan being cast out is tied to the language of the cross here where Jesus says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What is this lifted up? It says in a, a moment that this kind of death, this, this signifies the kind of death that he was going to die. So uh, again, y- your mind is probably drawn back to John chapter 3 and the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. As he says, even as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man will be lifted up. Um, it's clear by the way the people respond that they understand exactly what he's saying. Lifted up. Lifted up to die. And then we ask this question, what sense will he draw all men to himself? Well, it, it cannot mean that all men will be saved because we know that that's not going to happen. This is not what happens in the, the rest of Scripture. We get that at least we can look to the end of Revelation and see that there are those who are cast into the lake of fire who did not believe in Him, whose names were not listed in the Lamb's Book of Life. But what has just occurred in the context of this passage? Once again, our mind is drawn back to the passage that we looked at last week together. Who has come saying, uh, seeking after Him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's the Gentiles. Now, the thought in the day of Jesus is that the Messiah is very much for the Jewish people. And and, and they had not really focused in on or at least ignored the the passages like we saw in Ezekiel. Where where God is going to draw people from the four corners of the earth. From every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is, once again, Jesus putting a, a, a highlight, an emphasis mark on the fact that this has now signaled a a turn in his earthly ministry to the cross. The Gentiles have come seeking after him. Again, John tells us that Jesus is indicating by this lifting up the idea of what kind of death he is going to die. If the crowds do not often get exactly what Jesus is saying here, here they seem to understand. But there is great understanding over what the Messiah's ministry was to be. Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They are concerned about what they thought Messiah was to be versus what his mission was actually. Interestingly, Chrysostom again states that they should know what things Jesus is talking about from their Old Testament and should not expect the Messiah to remain forever. So too, Carson says, they should not only see the Messianic language of reigning, but also the ideas of suffering, and yet they refuse to see it as such. I think I mentioned to you guys a few weeks ago, there's a, there's a, a group of um, a people called the Qumran community, and they kind of hid out in, in uh, caves and, and studied the Word of God. And, and some of those people in the Qumran community Uh, they believed there were going to be two messiahs because they saw one who was conquering and one who suffered. They said, well, it can't be one and the same. (laughs) There has to be two different ones. We can't have the messiah suffering and dying. That's kind of the attitude here. Wait a minute, what? 
No, 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 no. The Messiah comes and conquers, and he gives Israel their political place, and etc. And this is their version of Messiah that they wanted. Part of the trouble I continue to see in dialogue on the internet and other places and is the, the failure to see who Jesus is as he claims to be. There are a lot of people who claim to know Jesus, but it is a Jesus, a Messiah of their own making. Not one who divides people into two categories as he has done earlier in this gospel. Those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Is Jesus kind and compassionate and a healer and caring? Yes, of course he is. Is he not also the one who brings the winnowing fork in his hand to thresh out the chaff from the wheat? Luke tells us that this is the good news that John the baptizer preached. The good news is that he has a winnowing fork? Yes. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Unless you are made pure, then you cannot stand in the presence of God. It is Christ who makes us pure. Believer, your confidence this morning is not in what you have done or will do, but in what Christ has already done in His finished work. And Jesus says here, this is what must happen. And the people say, you must not be the Messiah then because that's not what we're expecting. You're supposed to come and you're supposed to conquer and you're supposed to reign. Must not be. Do you recall John chapter 11, the high priest Caiaphas and the, uh, the, the Sanhedrin there, the council as they're gathered around? What is their concern? People are continuing to believe in him. My goodness, he just raised a man from the dead. If he goes on like this, what will happen? People will continue to what? Believe in him and follow him. And we will lose our place and our status. Therefore, he must die. A few verses later. Oh, we've got to get rid of the evidence too. We've got to kill Lazarus. Why? Because it says in that text, people were coming to see what had happened. That Lazarus had been raised from the dead. No, he was, he was dead for four days. You know, Martha, surely by now he stinketh. Right? He's dead. And I think other commentators are right when they say they knew exactly who Jesus was and they didn't like his plan. Jesus here again is challenging the idea of what they thought versus what is reality. There's a misunderstanding. And it is, uh, excuse the phrase, of biblical proportions. Believer, your confidence is not in what you do, but in what Christ has already done. And he is pointing to that here. This is the pathway to the cross that he is paving here. If you're not in Christ... You have not benefited from what He has done. And you must turn from your sins and trust in His finished work. Do not create a Messiah of your own making who has no power to save, only the power to somehow coddle you in your sin. No, Jesus comes and He divides. 
His light exposes sinfulness. And all those who do anything good, paraphrasing John earlier in his gospel, can only look and say, it is because of God that I have done good. It is because of Christ. It is because of what he has finished and accomplished. Well, in light of their misunderstanding, Jesus now finally, in our third point, challenges the crowd. In his usual style, Jesus doesn't answer directly. Instead, he speaks using the language that we see John using in the beginning of his gospel analogically. Look at verses 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. If you've not had a chance to listen to Pastor Brett's first two sermons from 1 John, I commend those sermons to you. Uh, He's preaching on Sunday evenings through 1 John. Tremendous, helpful, encouraging sermons. In his last sermon, he preached about this idea of light and darkness from 1 John 1, 5 through 10. Turn over there with me to 1 John 1. Listen to what is said here. Same author. 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. Who's the him? Heard from Jesus. And proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Notice how John is using the same metaphorical language here uh, after the cross to, to point back to the cross. Jesus is looking toward the cross and saying, you must follow me. This is how I'm going to die. And John uh, afterwards looks back and uses the same kind of language and looks back upon the cross. This is what that means. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. To quote uh, our own Pastor Brett here, to say that God is light is to say that God is pure, God is true, God is holy, God is righteous, God is morally perfect. He quotes from uh, Psalm 119, 137, Righteous are you, O Lord Yahweh, and right are your rules. He quotes from Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, the truth claim that God is light is absolute, Pastor Brett said. Spot on. After this, in his sermon, Pastor Brett also reminded us of the light and darkness language of John's gospel and how this is attributed to the eternal Son as well in places like John 1, John 3, and John 8. And, and then uh, Pastor Brett stated, so not only does the statement, God is light, indicate the character and nature of God, it also takes on the sense of that which has been revealed, which certainly makes sense in view of the first four ch- uh, verses of chapter 1 of First John. 
the eternal Son of God or the Word of Life, that which was with the Father from the beginning, before the foundation of the universe, the eternal Son of God revealed, manifested to sinful mankind in order to be the Savior of sinful mankind. Jesus uh, is saying here what John echoes in John chapter 1 and in 1 John chapter 1. The light is with you. Believe in the light. If you're continuing in your path to not see me as Messiah, you are walking in darkness. So we learn where John got the metaphor from the Lord Jesus. It is Jesus who compares himself to the light. We think of places like Hebrews chapter 1 where he's the very radiance of the image of God. This, this, this idea of light, purity, of glory is seen. Listen to verses 35 and 36 again. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Notice yet again, what does Jesus do? Here is the compassion. Jesus divides... But then he calls. He calls. He calls on them to believe in him again. He is indeed answering their question. The Son of Man is the light who is with them for the moment, but he will not always be there. Therefore, while he is still with them, they ought to believe in him. Sadly, we see the response in the rest of verse 36 and into verse 37. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Obviously, we'll, we'll look at these more closely next week. But my question this morning is, what is your response? If you are one who is in Christ, are you living like the gospel the mission that Jesus came to accomplish and did accomplish is foremost, is central in your life. We are not to be those who are covert, covert in our lives about what we believe and live. We are not God's CIA agents. We tell the truth. Are you proclaiming the finished work of Christ? Brothers and sisters, I, I want to just say it's becoming more and more apparent that there will come a cost with claiming that day after day after day. Just earlier in this passage, Jesus says, essentially, as he says in the other Gospels, take up your cross and follow me. Die to self. Doesn't earn us anything. It's the proper response to being justified. To set ourselves aside. To say, this is who I am. I am in Christ, no matter the cost. Are you proclaiming the finished work of Christ? Are you encouraging brothers and sisters with the truth of who God is and what he has done and to trust him, even though they're suffering? Lastly, if you're not in Christ, you have been told clearly who he is and what the judgment is. Jesus you know, again, people have this idea of the compassionate, loving, gentle Jesus, which is so true, but they miss the part where he says, you're either a child of God or a child of the devil. There's only two things, right? There's only those two options. 
My call to you today is repent and believe the gospel and become a child of God. Let's pray. Lord, I think of that pastor out in Arizona who only knew to say, God is good, God is good, God is good. The temptation to flee the mission was stronger than any of us could imagine. But the resolve of Jesus was, Father, be glorified. Lord, for those of us who are in you, that is our, our goal. Central to our walk is the good news, which was the requirement of the death of the eternal incarnated Son of God on a cross bearing the judgment that I deserved, that other sinners deserved. And not only in that forgiving us of our sins, but giving us His righteousness. We, we sang about that this morning, clothed in His righteousness. That is our only hope. And we pray, Lord, in whatever situation we find ourselves, Lord, be glorified. I do pray for those who do not know you, Lord, that this morning they would see their sinfulness in the pure light of Jesus and know that the only way to be rescued from their sin and rescued from the judgment of God and, and, and brought into the family and reconciled and, and, and declared right standing and to be sanctified and to be glorified is to turn from their sin and to trust in Christ alone. I pray for that this morning, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.